Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. My guest today is simply one of the finest singers in the world. As part of Westlife, he sold over 55 million records, 11 number one albums, 16 number one singles, and played to millions worldwide, including last year's sold out show at Wembley Arena. He is one of the most endearing and kindest people I know and have the honor of calling a friend. So please welcome Mark Fahili. Hello, Stevie. Hey. <laughs> How are you doing? Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, actually, how are you doing? I mean... <laughs> um, I'm doing good, yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I had what I would describe as a bit of a hairy December, <laughs> um, and not in the good way. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I basically, we, we started our indoor arena tour in the UK um, mid-November and all was going well until at the very end of November in Newcastle about an hour before the show I decided right this fever that I have is getting worse and to the point where I'm worried about the show now uh, you know this is probably like two or three o'clock of the day and I went over found a local GP and um, oh just everything was sky high all the different readings and stuff like that so he sent me into A&E and within kind of a couple of hours I was lying in A&E there had been an England football match on that day for the World Cup and um, around 9pm there was a massive influx of injured um, you know football supporters that had been drinking and broke their ankles and their legs and their arms and so I was sitting in this A&E while the boys were on stage in Newcastle <laughs> playing the gig because they very heroically went ahead with the gig you know and I I um, completely supported them that obviously, but yeah, I was, I was in the A&E and I was kind of like on Twitter seeing how it was all going, you know, lying in a bed surrounded by injured football fans. But, um, you know, that, that was kind of the scary bit at the start. Um, you know, the word pneumonia scared the living daylights out of me when I first, when the doctor first said it to me, but I suppose they broke it down and told me that it's just a very bad chest infection and as long as it's treated properly and you take care of yourself, it's fine. So, you know, I very unfortunately had to just go home and it was almost being back in lockdown um, because I was just, for the first couple of weeks, I was just in bed all the time. And then for the next couple of weeks, I couldn't leave the house or you know, it was really cold, so I was afraid to go outside. Um, so it was a very, very strange, almost out-of-body experience to watch the Westlife tour kind of go ahead. Um, but as I say, the boys have my full support and I'm in awe of how, how the hell they, I mean, they had a couple of hours notice before the first gig and all of my bits and pieces um, had to be replaced or sung by somebody else. The choreography had to be changed um, and they absolutely nailed it. And the fans supported them and the fans sung along here and there to show support. And there was a really positive um, atmosphere all around, you know. Um, but it was certainly strange sitting at home watching it all on, to be honest, I was watching it on Twitter because, you know, that's where I could see video clips and feedback and stuff. Um, but, you know, at the time it felt like forever and it felt like this big dark cloud, I suppose, but it was just four weeks in 25 years. It's the first time that any of us have missed, you know, a stint of gigs like that. And um, put it this way, I'm very glad that it's behind me now and I'm really looking forward to all the rest of the tour that's coming up. Yes, exactly. So I'm talking to Mark just before the boys go off to, uh, where are you going next? Is it Asia? Yeah, we're going to Asia. We start in Indonesia and we go Hong Kong, Taiwan, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand and Singapore as well, actually. And I've probably missed out on a couple of places there, but we 
we go down there quite frequently, really, and it's be- it's become our it's become it was right up there with the UK and Ireland as our largest territory in the world. The support out there is phenomenal, and we love going out there. You know, it's these territories have showed massive support since the beginning, but as the industry develops out there, um, the gigs are getting bigger and better, and we are just loving it. You know, um, it's it, I grew up on a farm you know, in the rural, in, outside of town in the west of Ireland, you know, and to think that I'm, you know, in the middle of Manila or Jakarta in Indonesia and people know my mum's name and my brother's name and not only my name, you know, they, they know so much about you and they know every word of every song and it's always going to be very surreal to, to be on the other side of the world and for people to know you that intimately, you know. Yeah, I bet. And just going back to that farm, what's the... um What's the music that's happening in the house even before you get a chance to even buy your own records and stuff when you're a kid? What's what's playing? Oh, well, on the farm, um, the farm was my grandparents' farm and I spent a lot of time in that. Both my parents worked, so I, my, my nana looked after me all the time. And she had this lovely little radio in the corner of the kitchen, um, little red plastic kind of single tape cassette thingy with a tuner on it and there was a local radio which it's now called Ocean FM but at the beginning it was called NWR I think um the, the, it had a few different reincarnations name wise and stuff but and this is the thing in in Ireland in the west of Ireland where I live there's a huge country music scene um in certain parts if you go into the right town you're going to see Stetsons even you know um and I grew up thinking this was just an Irish thing, but even other parts of Ireland and, you know, I, I wrongly, like when we first came to the UK, I used to talk about Gareth Brooks all the time and a lot of people didn't know who I was talking about. And I was shocked that not everybody knew country music, um, but where I grew up, it was massive. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe it's because there was less sort of big venues and country music is something that's friendly to smaller towns and, you know, one man and a guitar and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it kind of also crossed over with the show band scene in Ireland as well. Um, so yeah, country music was on the radio all day, every day, both local kind of domestically made country music by local artists and also all of the big stars from Nashville and America and everything. So that was massive. And um, I always go way back, the perfect song to display or demonstrate the the example is I Will Always Love You, which is the perfect kind of R&B pop ballad, but also the perfect country song. And there's a, For me, the relationship between R&B and country is massive. And so I do think that my love for R&B and soul music probably, in, in you know, comes somewhere from the beginnings of that country foundation in a way, you know. And when did you, I mean, kind of coming up on the farm and, and the country music and everything, I mean, when do you remember kind of first starting to hear those kind of soul voices that have ended up influencing you so much? So my dad has actually played a huge part in in sort of my knowledge of music and my beginnings of music. So um, my dad, uh, you know, he worked... In, in, he's brilliant with his hands. He's like a, a qualified carpenter, but he, he worked mostly in my childhood as he used to both sell and fit and supply windows, doors, conservatories. And so he'd come back sometimes. One evening he came in the gate of the house and I seen this 
satellite dish that was probably big enough for the BBC to use to broadcast um, on the back of a trailer, tied to the trailer. And I obviously started jumping up and down because, you know, it obviously looked like a spaceship coming in the gate. But he got his mate to hook it up. And so we we had, I don't know, I was probably around 10, but we had like all the American channels, like an, including MTV. But going back before that, he came home one day somewhere, somehow with this vinyl, like with a, with a record player and just a massive box of vinyls. And in that, there was things like Gladys Knight and the Pips, Nanamus Scory. Yeah. Um, there was like a couple of top, top of the Pops compilation ones, of proper 1970s looking ones, you know. Um, mm. And there was all sorts, there was an Irish band called the, the Horse Slips. Um, Eddie Grant, um, you know, Yes, like I can dance, dance with. Oh, me. I can dance. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, so this random box of vinyls, and then there's me, sort of at seven or eight years old, living in the middle of the countryside on a Saturday, where all my neighbours and friends must have just been off doing something else. So I'd go out to my dad's garage, which was like, um, you know, this amazing little garage full of tools and mm-hmm. full of wood and full of, and then in the corner there's this record player with this random box of of various genres of music, but there was definitely sort of a soul jazzy sort of, and also quite rock Jesus Christ superstar soundtrack was there as well. Yeah. Um, so there was lots of stuff in there that makes sense to, and I, so I used to have nothing else to do, but go out to that garage and just blare all this music. And, you know, the nat- my natural instinct, I just loved it. And I, it became something that was a bit of a habit then that I would go out of my own accord and listen to it. He also brought back this, from another job he wasn't stealing the stuff by the way the people were throwing <laughs> it out <laughs> and he'd be like no 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 I'll take that um, so there was this other thing which was like this these massive cassettes that you sort of slot into a player yeah. cartridges I don't know what they were called yeah, cartridges like, but, they yeah. were, but they were pretty I mean amazing and I don't certainly haven't seen them in a long time but um, there was a whole different bunch of music on those and so yeah my dad has always played a big part the, the other massive thing that my dad done and I remember it like as if it was yesterday. I was in my bedroom and this is when we had this massive satellite dish hooked up that he had got off these people. They were throwing it out because they were downsizing to a more modern satellite dish. And he just came running into my room one night, quite alarmingly. And he was like, quick, 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 come, you know, come up here. I want to see this girl singing on the TV. And I ran up sort of half kind of, half like kind of shocked because he came bursting into my bedroom and half intrigued and it was basically Mariah Carey singing I think it might have been her M- MTV Unplugged session mm. it was something where she was singing live with with her backing vocalist and a gospel choir and mm-hmm. that was a massive moment for me you know because you know it wasn't like just you know listening to kind of hardcore gospel music it was like a, a, a really good pop introduction to gospel music the gospel choir was there and the vocals but and also I just immediately fell in love with her you know like she the way that she performed and stuff like that um and so that was a huge moment and once again my dad was completely responsible for it and to this day he still calls me from his van you know um and he's like hang on a minute I have to pull in I have to pull in the van and park up and call you know call you and um listen to this listen to this and he just put the, the phone up to the radio and it'll be like you know, um, I don't know, random songs. And I'm like, actually, what is that song? It's not like, oh God, dad's ringing me again with some, with some, you know, song that makes no sense every time. So he has a sense of 
sort of blues, jazz, soul. And every time he rings me or recommends something, it's always something that really impresses me. Um, and so I always make sure to listen when my dad, you know, says stuff. And sometimes he'll ring me and say, you really should do this song. And I'm like, dad, we already done that in Westlife, you know? <laughs> so uh, maybe there's a bit of an A&R man in him, perhaps. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, taste as well. I mean, that's the thing. It's, you know, and, and when you're listening to the, whether it's in the garage or wherever, I mean, at what point are you singing along or is that, does that happen instantly? I think I would have always sung along a little bit, but when it came to sort of properly, you know, if you, you can plug headphones into a, into a big, because I got this amazing hi-fi system for Christmas, maybe when I was 11 or 12. Do you know, one of the kind of big multi-level ones with the oh, vinyl yeah. player on the top and oh, two yeah. cassette tapes and CDs and, um, and it had like a little function where you can, you know, dull down the vocals or whatever, like a karaoke button mm. or whatever. Um, and the sound from that was like a stadium in your living room. Mm-hmm. And then around that time in the early 90s, you know, the Bodyguard soundtrack was out. And um, between the amazing sound and me sort of becoming a teenager, a young teenager, I used to do the whole lock your bedroom door, turn off the lights. And it would have been Whitney, Mariah, and I got this CD called Sounds to Blow Your Mind Free with the Hi-Fi system. And there was songs like, uh, well, True Colors, Cindy Lauper. Um, and there was like a, there was, it was just a really amazing, there was a Celine Dion song on there. It was just an amazing mood. It was very moody and dark, the whole album. Mm. Um, and around that time, I always sang in school, you know, I always sung in the, in the church choir as well. Um, the first time I sung solo would have been singing away in a manger on Christmas Eve at a carol service. But in terms of me going, plugging my voice and singing into my own sort of version of self-expression mm. would have been when I was, you know, every teenager goes a bit moody and locks their bedroom door and stuff like that. And so for me, my kind of route of through expression very quickly became singing, you know, and all of these, to be honest, mostly female singers like Alanis Morissette was another one. Um, and to this day, I always joke with you about when I'm recording vocals, it's like, where's El Gummers? Do I put on the Alanis Morissette head or the yeah. Houston head or the, you know? Um, and yeah, Lauren Hill and uh, was, was another big one. But like, you know, even back before she became sort of a big solo megastar when she was in Sister Act. Sister Act too, yeah. To, yeah. Um, to be honest, my, I, my bedroom with the lights turned off and that really powerful sound system um, in the very early 90s, I, I definitely connected with the idea. It's not just singing, because I've been singing. Most Irish kids, there's a lot of singing in school and stuff, but um, the idea of it actually being a form of expression or instead of screaming or getting angry, you know, I could mm. sing in my bedroom, you know. Um, and obviously the amount of times where the, the fist would start knocking on the door saying, turn it down! <laughs> um you know, that, but I think that's probably a scene from every teenager's um, life. But yeah, so that was something that, yeah, I mean, when I talk about it now, it's like I'm still there, you know. And sometimes that's why I like to turn the lights off in the, in the vocal booth and be in complete darkness because it kind of almost puts me back in my bedroom, you know. 100%. And actually you're getting this incredible masterclass from the finest predominantly female vocalists of all time that you're singing along to and, and, and in inadvertently learning a lot of their tricks by 
emulating them in many ways. Yeah, very much. I mean, I, I definitely would be more of a sponge than anyone in terms of like, you know, uh, ingesting whatever I listen to, but I would have very specific tastes and, you know, I suppose um, like people like Whitney Houston, her voice is just, it's, it's you know, otherworldly. Like I, I, it has a connection, whether it be chemical or psychological, it, it, it goes into your bloodstream, you know. And so you can't help but be influenced by people like that. Um, there's other singers that I would listen to all day long, maybe even sing along with, but they, they mightn't sort of uh, stay stay in my brain, you know. Um, it's, you know, every time, like, every time I do a performance, there's going to be some little Whitney riff or something. You know mm. this already. So oh, yeah. Sometimes I'm like, right, that's a little bit too obvious, so I better, you know, not do that one. But, um, yeah, so... And, and also a lot of people used to always say to me, oh, you know, because at the beginning I used to be very anti-vocal coaching, which I'm now religiously a massive fan of, of vocal mm -hmm. coaching. But in the early days, it was a bit more like, oh, no, I don't want to change my voice and I don't want somebody to come in and tell me how to sing. But really, I did have vocal coaching. It was just like remote vocal coaching via listening to some of the best records of all time. Um you know, and, and so that was my form of vocal coaching. And it wasn't even just vocal coaching. I got very into listening to the background vocals. And actually on that same sound system, there was a two cassettes. So I could do the whole, record my voice on one and then flip the yeah. two cassettes over and then put a harmony on and just keep doing mm. that. And yeah, I remember yeah. doing that for a, a Fuji song. I'd done like a, an acapella from start to finish of, I think it was probably Killing Me Softly. Um just with like three-piece harmony of the entire song, a cappella. But um, I, I feel like I, I always found a way somehow to follow my interests, you know, uh, in that sense. Definitely. And I think it's really interesting when you talk about someone like Whitney is everyone always, it seems to be a, th a thing a little bit more now these days where people confuse great singers with technique and actually... It is a bit of technique, but the one thing that Whitney bought, everyone you mentioned, but specifically Whitney bought was intention and connection. And sometimes she didn't have to sing a hundred million notes. She just had to sing the one and it broke your heart. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about Whitney, I think of her as like, like this big fat solid laser. I don't think of lots of melisma and, and riffs no. and everything like that. She done them, but... It, she was like, she, it was just pure expression. Like when you watch her sing, regardless of what time in her career it was, everything was fully believable at all times, you know? Um, yeah. And that's, for me, like, it's, well, it's a mixture of lots of different things, but her, obviously her tone and her technique, but it's just looking at her, like for me as well, the visual it was the same when I was in the early 90s, when I was like 10, 11, 12, with Mariah. It's like watching her as well. It, it's watching the bead of sweat coming down the side of the face. It's watching them, you know, scrunch up their the muscles in the corner of their eyes and their neck, you know, starting to sort of, um, all of that. You can just watch them and you know that it's, it's pure and it's real. Um, and obviously today you've got a lot of people trying to emulate it. And you could have somebody that could, you know, be close technically but they could be like you know scratching their scratching their hair as you know, like they don't look like they're expressing their their own inner feelings uh so for Whitney to stand in a stadium or on the Grammys and to be so exposed and so raw and then also her performance so perfect and 
I mean, it was, it's just one, one, once in a lifetime, really, you know, people, people like that. And it will always shine through. Um, you know, if, if she was to come out right now, I believe she'd be just as big. And all of these great icons probably would be, you know, um, just as big if they arrived on the scene today. I think it would, and I know that people might be, might question that, but I think that talent, that big and ability to express you know, and that connects to everybody in the world. And I think that would come through any industry in any era, you know, if you're that powerful. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So post sort of mid-teens, um, I mean, this is obviously your, the Mariah obsession continues. Um, I mean, what are you starting to think about? Are you enjoy? Are you joining bands? I mean, obviously, there's a point where you do put a band together. But I mean, are you doing solo? Do you start to think, I want to be a singer. I want to be in a band. I want to do this. Or does it? I mean, does it all just fall into place naturally when you just happen to get together with a few mates? So for me, I kind of you know I grew up as I said a few miles outside town, and I didn't even know how to like get into the local musical you know like I would have been so green and so unaware of even that you know how, how to even contact the person who puts the local musicals together and mm. say can I be in the musical you know um and so one day I opened the local paper and there's a little section in it called bits and pieces and it was like where people could just advertise you could be selling a car you could be selling a pair of jeans I don't know and so it had like this audition for a musical in the bits and pieces. And so I literally jumped out of my skin and um, I probably screamed the house down. I probably got anxious that I was going to miss it. And then I got excited and then I got nervous. And anyways, I ended up going in and, you know, convinced probably that I would be told, you know, see you later, get lost. And I went in and I can't remember what I sang or anything, but it would have definitely been some sort of like, I don't know, pop R&B song off the, off the radio or something. And straight away, they, you know, they kind of said, absolutely. And so, it, like, to me, that was the biggest thing that could happen in my life, was to get into the local musical, you know. And what, what was the musical? Um, so the musical, that particular musical, it, it, that one didn't end up happening. Okay. But another one happened very soon afterwards that I got into. And it was basically West Side Story, except they actually made a roll up for me and a couple of other kids because there was no role for kids our age, but they actually put a scene in that was made just to get us in the musical. Wow. So they sort of shoehorned us in um, because they were like, we have to have these kids in because it was me and a couple of other kids. And, um, and so that was West Side Story, but it was this random part, as I say, that they made up for us. But that was actually the first time where every night, it ran for a few weeks and every night I would go because I was only in it for five minutes, but I'd go and sit upstairs in the theatre. The, the public weren't sitting upstairs in the, on the balcony, and so the, 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 there was like a small orchestra up there. And I would go and sit next to the orchestra every night and watch the show, but I was also, you know, unbeknownst to myself, sitting beside an, a mini orchestra, listening to them play. And so that was really amazing. And that was one of the first kind of experiences of being a part of a live show with live music and everything. Um, and yeah, so that was the first time. And then the next thing that I got involved with, because that went well, I was then kind of automatically sort of included in 
the, the musicals that came next. And the first one that came after that was, well, there was Godspell and one called Children of Lear, which were local um, mm. kind of productions as well. And then Oliver was done. And Oliver was the first time that I met Shane Filan and also my best friend from, from Sligo. And um, so it was through Oliver that I sort of, well, I probably knew Shane from school and he was like, Shane was Mr. Popular and, you know, all the kind of girls, loads of them, and he was loads of mates and everything like that. And I was kind of shy and reserved, but during Oliver, he was playing Dodger and my best friend was playing Oliver. I think I came in and had one line, which was, uh, books you ordered from the bookseller, sir, um, or something I like that. I love that you remember that. That's hilarious. Well, I remember it because uh, people took the piss of me for about five years afterwards, but, um, yeah, so I, I was very shy, so I wasn't naturally getting lead roles because people just thought, oh, he's really shy and quiet, you know. Um, and little did they know what would happen down the line. But um, yeah, so I met Shane there. And because we were kind of backstage all the time and in rehearsals and during the actual run, um, and there wasn't as many people, like in school, you, you know, you nearly couldn't get near Shane because everyone, everyone was talking to him. But uh, yeah, so we became good friends in that. And that was, you know, the beginnings of of my friendship with Shane. Um, and then I would later go on to meet Keen as well through school musicals and stuff. And, you know, the rest sort of unfolded as it did. Um, but once again, the point being that it was all local, like... Getting into Oliver was the biggest thing. That, I didn't have any hopes past that, you know, <laughs> like, and I never really have had, I, I've never been like sort of this person that aspires to take over the world and be in this band that sells gazillions of records. I always was kind of like just quite impressed that I got into that musical and then I was quite impressed that I got into the next one and so on and so forth. Um, so, yeah. And... Because of these meetings, it turns into a band with various different names. But I wonder if you remember the first time that you were, you were in a recording studio, when it was either Six as One, IOU, whichever one you want to remember. Yeah, so it would have been IOU, because, yeah, IOU <clears throat> um, was still very Sligo-based. And there was six of us in it. Three three of us was myself, Shane and Keen, and the other three were um, three other lads that didn't end up in Westlife, um, unfortunately. Um, and so we, myself and Shane wrote a song called Together Girl Forever. We wrote it on our way home from school. It was about Shane's now wife, Gillian. Um, and Shane was, you know, head over heels for her and he didn't know how to tell her and all this kind of stuff. And we also had decided that we wanted to write, write songs at the time. And it was just very natural to us. We didn't have, you know, Scandinavia and London and LA sending us all these demos. So we just naturally wrote a song for ourselves because we didn't have any other songs. Um, interestingly, it wasn't our natural gravitation to do covers. We naturally gravitated towards writing a song for ourselves. Um, and I remember it, it was called Together Girl Forever. As I say, it was about Shane's story with his wife, Gillian, who he hadn't yet got together with, but was very much already in love with, I think. And um, I remember walking through the little park next to our school and singing some melody ideas to Shane and some lyric ideas. And he was like, yeah, yeah, totally. And what about this? You know, and we just wrote that song. And basically around the same time, there was a local record store in Sligo that had been obviously impressed enough with what we were doing 
we'd done some live performances and there was lots of people screaming in the audience and it was all very exciting. So this local record sort of said, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll put you up in a recording studio and you can record some songs. And so we recorded Together Girl Forever and another song that we also wrote called Everlasting Love. And um, the recording studio was basically a little studio in the house of a local musician who, forgive me if I got it wrong, but I'm pretty sure his name is James Blennerhazard. And he was, you know, he had been known on the Irish music circuit as a bass player and a musician and a, a producer. And the record store put us in touch with him and we ended up going to his house with a local, another local Sligo musician called Porik Meehan and um, we went to record the song. So they'd made backing tracks to both our songs. And um, I remember, I mean, I remember being in the room and stuff. It was just like a, a room in someone's house. But what I do remember is they immediately kind of, so I think Shane done a couple of bits and then I went in to do my bits and immediately they're like, oh, I remember thinking, oh, is there a problem? What's What's going on here? But they, they seem to just, be having difficulty with the sound and my voice and because I always have sung quite powerfully or whatever and I remember them they had to, they had to take a minute to get their heads around how they would set my mic up and, and the levels and the compressors and all the various things that you'd know all about um, in order to record it and, and capture the power without it over you know overriding the microphone and stuff and um, so that was a bit like oh god does this mean I'm I'm crap or whatever, you know, I, I was a bit, um, but thankfully they got the hang of it in the end. And, you know, it's, it's strange because as much as that, that song Together Girl Forever, which is online um, on YouTube and stuff, but you can hear my, like, you know, you can hear the, the same tone we'll say that you can hear in Fly Me That Wings or later songs, you know, thankfully, it, and once again, it's because I'm obsessed over all these other vocalists in my room with the lights turned off and, you know, mimicked them and got influenced by them and was like a sponge. Um, but you could hear my tone straight away. And so even though there was a bit of a struggle in the studio to get my the sound right and the mix right, in the end, I was so, the payoff was so amazing because I heard my voice recorded for the first time. And it's not that I, I don't mean in a cocky way, but I could just tell that, that, oh, you know, like that kind of sounds okay. It doesn't sound really bad. And it kind of sounds how I want, how I meant it to sound as well, you know? So, um, believe me, I wouldn't even call it confidence, but that was kind of like self-esteem wise. That was one of the only places where I had a little bit of, okay, I kind of, I'm not a beginner, you know, even though I was probably 16 at the time, but I have been, I have been in that bedroom for like six years since I was 10 years old, you know, constantly singing all day, every day. So um, it was nice to hear my voice recorded and that it didn't sound horrible, you know. But it's like a beautiful recipe of all these kind of elements that you put into it. And and as you say, it coming out, and and you say that clip is online and, you know, you can, your your tone, Shane, you know, Shane's is the same. It's still... Oh, Shane, I mean, it's, it is, it's Westlife. It's, it's well, there. It's, it's, it is absolutely there. And it's... Um, you know, it, it, it's amazing and it's great experience. And of course, that you know, it, it can never be underestimated. The power of um, Shane's incredible mum, whereby, as a as a promotional tool, after that, I mean, she kind of took it from there, didn't she? Yeah. So, so Shane's mum, the lovely May, um, she was a massive supporter and a, and a real backbone to to us in a, in a world where we didn't really have any 
Sven Gallis or peers or people to guide us. But she was a very strong woman and she had a big family. She had loads of children and she obviously, you know, she, she was no pushover. So she was always there for us in our corner. Um, and so we had this CD that the local record store had kind of paid to make and get recorded and mixed and mastered. Um, but we still didn't kind of, we hadn't met Louis Walsh yet. And so in like simultaneously, Louis had got whispers of this, this bunch of lads down in Sligo and it's like, hang on a minute, what do you mean? They've written their own songs and they've got it recorded themselves and there's a CD and it's actually for sale in Sligo. He was very impressed by these random strangers that he knew nothing about. But at the same time, Shane's mum actually came from the same very small village that Louis came from in Mayo in Ireland. And so she was trying to get in touch with Louis from one side and then Louis had kind of heard little bits about this mystery boy band or whatever down in Sligo that have written their own songs and, and recorded CDs and stuff. And eventually she got through to him and um, that was just a huge defining moment in all of our lives, you know. Um, like Louis was like, oh no, I'm managing boys, I don't have time for any of this, you know. I, I, okay, sure, look, send two of them up. I don't want to meet them all, I don't want to be overwhelmed. Send two of them up to Dublin to me and I'll have a coffee with them and I'll see if I can put them in touch with some other manager. Um and that lasted for about five minutes. I think I think he, he we were very eager, but we were also we we kind of were also quite we similar to me, like we didn't have stage school or dance teachers and vocal coaches at our disposal. So I sort of taught myself in my bedroom in a way, you know. And in the same way we would as a band, we kind of would obsess over Baxter Boys take that. Enzinc, Boys to Men. And so that's how we done our research and our training, you know. Um, it wasn't like we were mimicking. We were researching these bands and, and listening to their harmonies and picking out, you know, all the little aspects that made Boys to Men, Boys to Men and that made Backstreet Boys, Backstreet Boys. And um, so Louis was just quite impressed about the fact that we just had our stuff together. You know, we, we kind of, we meant business from the beginning, we didn't even know how kind of professional nearly we were, you know, at the time. But Louis was obviously used to young lads who kind of were good looking and might be able to sing a bit, rocking up and just thinking, yeah, where's my record deal? Whereas we were putting major groundwork in. We cared about it so much that we had funded, not funded, but we had orchestrated our own CD release, you know, and written our own song and put on our own shows and so um, he was very impressed and also he was doing a favour for basically the woman from down the road in my village, if you know what I mean. Um, and thankfully, so he, the first time we met Lou, he was like, no way, don't have time, busy with Boyzone, I'll try and find you another manager. And then a week later, he called us to say, uh, you have to be in Dublin on Friday because you're supporting the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> um, and it was literally that quick and that's how, just how quick I've said it there is how quick we... Two of the lads went to meet Louis in Dublin and a week later he called us to say, be in Dublin next week or whatever because um, you're supporting the Backstreet Boys. And we had all bought tickets. We were, we were queuing at 6am, you know, in the local record store to buy tickets for the Backstreet Boys. And fast forward a week later, we were playing basketball with them backstage and having dinner with them and catering and stuff. And it was after that performance when Louis seen the crowd's reaction to us and he just obviously something in his head 
kind of clicked and he's like, right, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pass these over to somebody else. I think there's something in this. So that was when he said, I'll manage you, but you have to do exactly what I tell you and I might want to get rid of a couple of you. And that was obviously very scary to hear. But but also, this is our one chance. This is Louis Walsh. And so we actually all agreed together. Um, we all agreed at that point that, look, if it's one of us that he wants to keep on or some of us or half of us or all of us, let's all shake on it and say it's an opportunity that can't be missed and, you know, we're all in this together, but whatever happens, you you go for it, you know. Um, and so it was very, very tough. And to be honest, for a 16, 17-year-old, kind of traumatic because we effectively, some of our best friends, you know, um, didn't end up making the final cut. And it was very difficult. And to this day, to think about it, there's still, there's still difficulties in the idea of reminiscing over it. Um, but we were very quickly given a baptism of fire about how, how cutthroat the music industry can be. Uh, and I didn't love that side of it at all. Um, but I suppose you have to, I had to like leave the farm and get into the real world at some point, you know, and that's, that's when it happened when we met Louie and things started getting serious. And were you, were the three of you involved in the auditions for the people that were to come in? Yeah, 100%. I'm kind of surprised, really, but um, like Louis was, Louis was like, right, we're having auditions. He's put the word out. Louis can drum up front page stories, at, you know, at the click of a finger in Ireland, especially like back in the late nineties. And so the news went out that Louis Walsh and these boys from Sligo were looking for new members and stuff. And he couldn't make it up. The first two people in the audition, there was like I don't know, a hundred people or seventy or whatever people at the audition. And the first two people was Nicky and Brian. <laughs> the first, and I, I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of think Louis put them on first, probably intentionally, but um, we didn't know anything about them. We just sat there kind of a la X Factor with the table, looking up at the stage. And I think Nicky came on first and sung a Ronan Keaton or a Boys Own song. And then, and he was wearing a pinstripe suit, which people of my age back in the 90s did, just didn't wear suits, you know. <laughs> Um, and so he was quite impressive and he kind of had longer hair he had been a, a, like a, in Leeds as a footballer so he kind of was a bit more stylish and a bit more um, polished around the edges and stuff and so Nicky was first and then Brian came on second with like bleach blonde hair parted in the middle kind of looked like some kind of Irish version of Nick Carter and Brian's personality from from the get-go was, was very very out there and very funny and kind of a playful and he also the first thing that Brian done was he sung like a lower harmony so one thing we done with all of the people that when we narrowed it down to the last say five people we went into a room with them and sang a cappella with them you know and Brian was the only person out of all of them and the first time we had ever sang with the third harmony Brian just out of the blue just made it up on the spot and uh, sung a lower harmony and that was it boom you know, he was kind of already in anyway because he, he looked great and he had a good voice in terms of singing lead. But the second he added the harmony, it was a it was just another ingredient that we didn't have. And it also made us sound like, you know, a vocal harmony group. I suppose to just one one harmony, you know, along with the, the lead melody um, immediately. It was like, you know, because that third harmony makes it, you know, you could sound like boys to men with three harmonies. <laughs> in the right room. So, um, so that was very impressive, um, 
from Brian. And yeah, we, we honestly, we were allowed to pick them. Originally, we were just meant to pick one of them, Nikki or Brian. And in the end, uh, the two of them stayed. And um, it was another tough decision to, to let someone else go in place of the extra person. But um, I don't know. I think, I think we made all the right decisions. And as much as it was very difficult to make those decisions, you know, to, to say goodbye to some of your closest friends in terms of them not being in the band anymore, it was the right decision. And arguably we wouldn't have had the success we had if we didn't make those decisions, you know. Absolutely. And as a band, as a, a five piece, when you're, you're there and you've actually got the five piece, in, in what order did it happen with, did you then go and make, again, some demos or records as a band before it got played to Simon or was it Simon was involved from the beginning and then you went in? In which way did it work? Um, so this is, first of all, this, this, I'm, I'm the worst at remembering all of these facts and forgive me if, I'm sure somebody yeah, will listen in, back in to what I'm saying. It, in my recollection, which is all I, oh, yeah, it, my recollection isn't the clearest, but um, so we, we met Simon for the first ever time in a hotel in Dublin called the Westbury and Louis brought us to meet him. We met him in the lobby, first of all, and we chatted to him. He said that he, he's working with Max Martin at the moment and that Max Martin would be one of the first people he'd put us forward to work with if we signed to him. Um, and so that was extremely impressive to us because Max Martin was Backstreet Boys and Backstreet Boys yeah. was our ultimate goal, you know, to be like a Backstreet Boys vibe. Um, and then we went into a room and... Simon had this like, come up to my suite, darling, and you can sing for me, you know. <laughs> so he had this massive suite in the, the Westbury, in the penthouse or whatever, and we all kind of stood in the living room and sang for him. And um, not long after that, we were in Steve Mack's studio recording some demos. It was all a bit like, let's put you in with, with, with the producer. Let's, you know, let's see how it goes in the studio. There was no like, right, here's, here's a pen and paper, sign a record deal. Mm. Um, so... We went to London and, as I say, I'm probably skipping back and forward over a load of very important information, but we went to London and went to Steve Mack's studio. They sent us two songs before we went. One was called Good Thing, which I think was later recorded by Gary Gates, and the other was called Everybody Knows. And Everybody Knows is like a kind of a mid-tempo R&B pop ballad. We were very excited about that. And then Good Thing was like a... Know, like a kind of disco-esque kind of pop song. Um, and we went and sung both of them and got the recordings back and, you know, got the demos back. And um, we were just very excited and everyone was very happy with it. Louis was very happy with it. Um, that was my first time on a plane going over there. Not that I admitted it to anybody because I felt like I didn't want to... I was embarrassed that it was... Because they were all like, oh yeah, I was in Spain on holidays and I went to visit my cousins in, in Wales. I was like, yeah, I've been on a plane. Um but I hadn't. And so it was all very, very, very exciting. And um, we came back with those two songs and we started performing them at like these gigs in Ireland called Beat on the Street, which is, you know, this road show that goes around the country. And um, this is all before Flying Without Wings and stuff. And, and although Flying Without Wings and Swear It Again were genuinely two of the first songs we ever caught as a band. Um, but it was very clear once again, from the word go, it was very clear that we had a sound, you know, our voices together, all five of us 
in various points added something to the pot and you know we it was kind of like we could record any song and it's going to sound like us you know and I think that was kind of where we realised and where there may be people around us like Louis and Simon realised that there's something going on here because we could take a song that you'd never think of a boy band recording and all of a sudden it sounds like Westlife you know um, you know Shane's voice starting any song is going to sound like Westlife you know um, and and so it was just all very exciting. But as I say, at each junction, you know, at each point, I was like, this is it. We've made it. We could go home happy now. You know, we recorded a song in London. That's it. You can't get better than that. You know, I didn't expect anything that came after that to happen. You know, none of it. No, not, no number ones and records or millions of sales or arena tours or stadiums. I honestly, all of it was news to me. Every time, each time something happened, it was a surprise to me, you know, whereas other people, they might have it all set out in advance. This is what I, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. I was just kind of like a passenger on the, on the train. I was like, when do you want me to sing? You know, like I was a bit like, I'm a bit lost here. So I'll just stick to what I know I'm able to do, which is sing. And I'll just do whatever everybody tells me, you know, and that was kind of me for the first five or more years of the band, you know. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I just sang. Yeah, that's, listen, it worked out. Um, it's interesting, Simon's name comes up quite a lot on this podcast um, for various reasons. And, and, and every single time it does, I'm the first to say that I think he's one of the fi- finest A&R people this country has ever produced. I think he's um, Simon Cowell's knack for knowing a song or hearing a song or hearing something within a song and being the first to admit that there isn't necessarily a technical or a musical way of, 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 of how he's hearing it, but he just connects with something so brilliantly. And, uh, and I often say, I think his ear is A&R ear is sadly missed in today's music. Yeah, industry. I, I mean, for me, you know, everybody knows the Simon, the, the Simon who's like the public persona, but for me, the, the Simon that I met, first of all, he's very similar in many ways. He, he had the sort of, you know, he had that Simon sort of confidence or, you know, whatever you might call it, but he is a very clever man. He, he, he knows exactly what he means to say. And that's exactly what he says. You know, nothing is, he doesn't waffle on and nothing that comes out of his mouth is a mistake, you know? And in the same way, he's just got a type of brain that, I mean, Shane has this type of brain when it comes to singing, you know, it's like, there's no other way to do it than this way. And it's perfect, you know, and Simon has uh, had a bit of that too, where, you know, it wasn't like he sat down for hours and planned what he was going to say, but there's only one sentence I can say right now and it's going to be the right sentence. And and what I say is right. It wasn't like, what do you think about this idea? It was like, this is what's happening. But it wasn't like, didn't feel like anyone was making us do anything. We were like, please tell us what genius move you have for us next, Simon. You know, like we were sitting there like little puppies waiting for his next stroke of genius and everything he done. And, you know, he, he, he stamped his foot and made a lot of noise within BMG at the time. Because like, I don't care how much it costs. This is the video I want for Flying at Wings and I want people flying up into the air and I want, you know, and he, and you know, he got it for us. And there was, there was a point where Flying at Wings was not ours, you know, it had already been vocaled by somebody else. And, um, 
and he he got that song for us and I mean what a what a lucky moment that was for us you know um and he he walked into TV stations and I mean I don't know like he'd just walk in and smile at them and they'd be like okay you've got the main slot tomorrow night you know like he just charmed everybody but he had he had a charm but he also had a kind of don't mess with me sort of feeling about him as well I think people were like yeah, I better be good to this guy in case he gets massive because it kind of feels like he's going to be huge, you know. Um, and whatever it was, he, was, he had a very disarming charm. And, um, and going back to what you said initially, which is the most important part, is he had a, a, a phenomenal, and still does, I'm sure. But as an A&R man who sits behind a desk in a record label, he he had a, a, a perfect ear for hit songs. And, you know, he... He wouldn't necessarily like have this big, huge bag of vocabulary, technical vocabulary. But I've sat there many a time with him and Steve Mack, and he's like giving feedback. And he's he mightn't be saying, you know, oh, give me some more lower end, on, and you know, and sort of, can you just turn down the, you know, some specific instrument within the orchestra? But he would sit there at the desk and go, well, look, just show me which button turns that bit down and that bit up. And he'll sit there and be like, okay, there, that's I want it that loud. Okay, not not lower, not higher, and he 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 just he had, he had an ideal kind of he wanted to hear it a certain way, and he didn't stop pushing the producers until it sounded like that. And sometimes, believe me, it was torture for some producers because you could be on mix one hundred and seventy eight, um, but when it came onto the radio, because it's. It's like these these key change moments. He didn't want it to just be a key change that kind of fell into the key change. He wanted, you know, he wanted the doors to close and the lights to be turned off. And then he wanted like a bus to drive through the wall key change, you know, um, type thing. And, and he sat there and probably until, you know, whatever o'clock in the morning, pushing and pushing until it sounded like a truck was driving through the wall key change, you know, and... And in the end, all these producers kind of went, oh, well, he's got it right again. You know, I was wrong. He got it right. And so he does have this amazing ability to direct and lead a song to greatness. Um, even if the song might have might have been a six out of ten, but he used to push it and pull it to a ten out of ten, you know. Do you remember the first time you heard Flying Without Wings? Yeah, 100 percent. So we, we went into Steve's studio because because someone else had cut it. Um, it was supposed to be, it was well on its way into being somebody else's song. And um, yeah, I mean, just out of respect, I won't go into whose song it was, but um, we went into the studio because like, look, you shouldn't even be able, be able to hear this song and don't tell anyone you've heard it. So we went into the studio and he played it. And honestly, it was like, it was like hearing, you know, I believe I could fly or... It, it was like we just heard this massive, unbelievable pop soul gospel kind of R&B. It just had everything. It was Wayne Hector's voice on the demo. And, you know, Wayne's vocal demos have always massively informed our vocals. You know, because Wayne wrote the songs and then he put the demo down. And, you know, his his vocals, we always sort of tried to recreate his his demo vocals, especially in the early days, before we started finding our own feet. Um, and it was, so it was Wayne singing Fly Me That Wings. And honestly, he might as well have played, like, as I say, I Believe I Could Fly or, or something like that and say, it's yours. And nobody's ever heard it before. It's original. And we went in and 
I don't know if it was that day or, or soon afterwards, we went to record it. And that was kind of, to be honest with you, that was a bit where it's like, it's an amazing song, but we actually added something to it as well, you know? As in, I feel like if anyone sung Fly Without Wings, it would have been a, a, a hit song. But we put our own mark on it, you know? Um, you know, there's like there's like Shane start this where Shane starts it and he does his little I can't I'm, I would never even try to to recreate it. But you know what he does on the on the uh, everybody on the, try. Um yeah, so so Shane's opening verse, it's just like kind of you know, in in the pop world in the UK anyways, there's like incomparable sort of delivery. And then we always there's a song, I think it was by a song a band called As as they, they had a song called, you know, I swear by the moon and all the for stars one. in the sky. All for one, yeah. Sorry. Um, and you know, there's a second verse where a different voice comes in and it kind of switches yeah. gear. And Flying Out Wings kind of gave us that feeling. And um, I don't know, it just, we, we, we were screaming and bouncing off the walls the first time we heard it and the fact that it might be ours. And of course, we probably like got down on our knees and were like, please, 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 can we have it? You know, these little 17-year-olds begging Steve Mack for, for his song. And to be honest, I'd beg him again for it if he could get, get one like it again. But um, yeah, so that was a huge moment. And also, you know, Swear It Again was, was kind of a, a brilliant song, but it, it was slightly closer to the you know middle of pop, whereas Flying With That Wings set us apart from... Mm. From well, it's it, not that it set us apart, but it just it was like right, what, that's what Westlife do, you know. Yeah, and um, it gave us. I remember people called me the first time it was on the radio, the first day it was released and played on the radio. I was like, oh, people are calling me about this that wouldn't have called me about if I let you go or swear it again. I'm getting texts and calls from people, mm. and so I knew something was different about Fly Me That Wings, you know. Um, mm. And to this day, it's still um, my favorite song to sing. And I guess as well, it was of from that album. It was not maybe not own not the only, but one of the songs that you could bring a lot of your your inspirations into your vocal for it because it was inherently gospel, and there was a gospel choir on it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, first of all, it, it certainly was the kind of the more gospel sort of driven driven song, and. Um, I don't know, like the, there's there's the bit, of course, like the, the as everyone calls it, the high note in Flying Without Wings. Um, I didn't even realise kind of at the time, I just kind of done it. I didn't realise this is going to be a high note and now I'm going to have to try and recreate this high note that I've done in the studio. I'm going to have to recreate it live a million times for the, for the rest, rest of, my of life. your life. <laughs> um, and honestly, there's a good 10 years or more where, where that note played a major part in adding to my anxiety as a performer. And I, I would always mess it up because I was um, anticipating it in a bad way. You know, for a few songs before Fly Me That Wings came in the set list, I'd be like, oh my God, here comes Fly Me That Wings. There's that note, there's a million people watching or 10 million people watching. Um, and I would always mess it up, you know. So it, was, it was, wasn't until later that I dealt with that element. But... Um, yeah, so Fly Me That Wings, especially live, it, it kind of, it's taken its own journey. So the live version and the original record, live is like, that's when I can truly bring that, the inspiration of people like Whitney Houston, where, you know, at the end of the song, I don't know, I've probably pushed it in a direction out of pure nature <laughs> to make it more like the end of a Whitney Houston performance 
Mm. Um, just because I think as a song, it it can it can absorb all that drama and it doesn't it's not weird it makes sense for it you know um so it's it's taken its own journey live and you've helped mm. it progress there was one point where there was like slightly coldplay esque version of flying at wings and then it sort of progressed yeah. and and i was like what if i just hold that note a little bit longer at the end and the note just gets a bit longer and a bit <laughs> you know and anyways um but you know i think it's it's fun it's just a fun part of our live show where people are like right what's he going to do to it this time or whatever um and i enjoy that spontaneity as well there's not many of our songs that that you can or should do that way but with flying with that wings it's fun to play around with the end of it and it's you know it's just a bit of fun really but uh, it it makes every show different for me which is why it's a good thing really you know it is and it's always wonderful seeing the the kind of encouragement from the other three when you're doing it they're just egging you on the whole time <laughs> yeah yeah well I, I, yeah the, there's um it's to be honest moments like that where you come out of you come out of the routine of the show and it's like any for me any moment it's really important to keep the backbone to a show but i love anything that makes tuesday different from wednesday different from thursday you know in terms of a show like I do think that you can do that too much and effectively, you know, you're taking away the audience members' experience that they came to see. But but if you do it at the right time in the right place, then I think it can be a lot of fun, you know? Absolutely. I know it shouldn't ever take away from the, the band and the four, but I think, you know, that's a moment that can do it. I wonder just after everything we spoke about at the beginning, I mean, what did you even think when... It just when you came to the second album and and the words Mariah Carey duet came up. Honestly, I remember like not long before that we were in a we were in a hotel in I think it was Taipei in Taiwan and the person that was introducing us was like, Oh, and you know, we've had many guests here over the years. Actually, we recently had Mariah Carey and all like all of us, not just me, were like, What? Oh, what room did she stay in? And you know, and where you know, and obviously they were like, Oh, she stayed in the presidential suite. And we we're like, Can we see it? Can we see it? You know. Um and honestly, it was only a few weeks later where I remember I was in a hotel in Indonesia. Nobody told me anything about we're we're trying to get Mariah Carey, not nothing of the sort. Um I had been playing the mad thing is I'd been playing so someone in our record label Dave Shack um, gave me Mariah's CD the Rainbow album and it had the Phil Collins Against All Odds cover on it that she had done by herself and we were blasting that in this trip in Asia we were blasting it in all the, the Vianos and the you know the cars that we were being taken around in we had this Mariah version of Against All Odds blasting on the, on the system in the cars and so, honestly, that was the same trip where I can't remember who came to my hotel room door in, in the hotel in Indonesia. And they were like, we're flying to Italy next week to record this song with Mariah. And I was like, what song? They're like, the fucking song you've been playing in the car for the last two weeks. And I don't know, I probably done something dramatic, like fall onto the floor or something like that. But um, honestly, I don't know how to even describe it. Like, we really got onto a plane a week later or whatever. We landed in Capri. This, I mean, the, the setting itself was like something out of a, you know, a fairy tale. We landed in, we actually landed, I think, in Naples airport. And then she sent her yacht to the port and the yacht brought us over to the island, Capri. And on the yacht was like her PA and, and a few people. And they were like explaining that we're going to go to the hotel. You're going to check in and then we're going to meet Mariah for, or we're going to meet M for dinner. It was like, you know, James Bond or something. And uh, so we went and checked in and then we ended up 
there's this tiny little restaurant down a little side alley in under an arch under a tree on on Capri and it's like we finally made our way up to the back of the restaurant and there she was sitting at this little round table just just her and one other person and it was just the most surreal moment ever but she I have to say immediately you know was just like your mate like she looked like Mariah Carey from a music video like big lovely curly hair and a lovely dress and you know she was fully made up just you know obviously evening where dinner time or whatever and um she was just immediately really friendly we felt like it was a bit like oh come over here we'll huddle away in the corner and let all the record company people and the management do their thing I want to like talk to you guys I want to get to know you and so the experience it could have went you know it could have went many ways but immediately it was it was a relief for me because I was like what if she's not nice you know um but yeah so we sat there in this little Italian restaurant and she knew all the waiters by name and stuff she obviously had been in Capri so much I think she made the, the entire Rainbow album there um and so she was like okay tomorrow I'm going to see you guys you're going to come up to the studio and so we had to walk up like about 10,000 steps up the side of a mountain to this studio that she was using and uh honestly I mean I kind of remember it all it's like as if it it's like I remember it as if it was a music video, you know, because it kind of happened, but it was a very dreamy weekend. Like by the time we left and we got dropped once again by by her yacht back over to the mainland and it was a bit like, did that actually happen? You know, um, but it did. And, you know, even down to making up the backing vocals and stuff, she was like, like, she was like, OK, what kind of harmony can you hear there? And, you know, at the end of it, there's a bit where we sort of do... Um, a whole new back and vocal part um, and we genuinely sat and with her and an engineer just made up the BVs you know and she was like what about this and she'd be singing you know she'd be singing in the talk back to me into my headphones and I'm like well I'm not going to question you <laughs> so you know um, I'm not going to say that's a that's a crap harmony let's think of something else but um, yeah she sat there and she was you know, she was twiddling the, the buttons and no, I mean, in terms of like getting the, the levels of all the BVs and stuff like that, the mix. And it was a very real and organic experience. It wasn't like, oh, Mariah was in LA and we were in Dublin and we never even met her. Um, you know, it was it was very real. And, and we performed with her quite a number of times afterwards um, and spoke to her. Actually, before we got to Capri, no, after after Against the Odds, we were performing with her on the Top of the Pops Award shows in Manchester and um, we were going to do Hero with her. So we were going to like do BVs and a couple of bits of ad-libs and stuff on Hero with her. And um, she was like, oh, I'll call you guys and we can go through the background vocals. You know, I'll call you soon. And we we're like, you don't have her numbers, but of course Mariah Carey can get your number if she wants. And anyways, I remember sitting in my mum's house, like in, this, in the living room that I grew up in, and my mum came in and she was like, there's somebody on the phone. Uh, I was like, who is it? She's like, well, it's it's a guy, but like he says, it's Mariah Carey. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Mariah Carey. But obviously it was her tour manager. And so I went in, I was like, hello. And he's like, all right, Mark, I've got Mariah on the phone for you. you know, so her tour manager, basically, and he, he was like, handed the phone to Mariah. And she was like, hey, Mark. And I was like, Mariah Carey's talking to me on my childhood telephone. <laughs> um, and so... She was like, so anyways, you know, about this hero background vocal thing, this is kind of what I had in mind. And so she started singing, 
she didn't just sing. She sang the 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 lead melody part of the background vocals. Then she started singing the harmony, and then she started singing the lower part. And she, I was just like on my phone listening to Mariah Carey singing down the phone to me. And it lasted for a good 20 minutes because she was going through all the various harmonies. And I was like, are you calling me to like, for me to give it the thumbs up to these? <laughs> like, what do you think I'm going to say? Do you think I'm going to say no? Um, and so anyways, yeah, so that was, a, and I'm, I was sitting, as I was listening to Mariah Carey singing down the phone to me, I was looking around, it was like the same wallpaper that I had done my homework beside, you know, when I was eight and nine and 10. And it was the same desk as like my dad's home office. I was like looking at everything around me and I was like, but the only difference is Mariah Carey's singing down this phone right now. Um, so it, my life has been full of surreal moments and I have to say they've all been, I mean, that, that's the bit where, see, that's the bit I consider to be lucky with even more than the millions and the gazillions and all the number, the records and the number ones and stuff. For me, it's like Mariah Carey sang down the phone to me. That to me is more valuable than any of it, you know? Um, and that's once again, going back to the kid in his bedroom with all the posters on the wall, you know, including one of Mariah Carey and many other people that we got to meet and work with, you know, um, to me, I always think back to my bedroom and the fact that I had posters of these people on my wall and I used to listen to them on my, on my hi-fi, you know, my CDs. Um, and now here I am with them, talking to them, some of them on the phone, <laughs> you know, in, in the same house. Uh, so I'll always be, and something that Louis and I, Louis Walsh and I share is, we always say, I don't care about all that crap. We're just fans. You know, we are just fans that happened to end up in the industry that we're fans of and happen to work with the people that we're fans of in some cases. Um, and I think that's, I don't know. I feel I'm I'm glad that I've always hung on to that, you know. I'm not like, yeah, I'm cool. This is what I do now, you know. I'm I'm a star and I work with other stars. It's like I'll always freak out a little bit inside if somebody walks into the room that I've been watching since I was a kid, you know, on TV. Uh and I don't think that's a bad thing, you know. I think it's a really good thing. I think a great example of that and one of the coolest things you've ever done, certainly as a band, was the time you got to duet with Donna Summer. Yeah, so um, like, and you know, collaboration and duets, that's really, if I say, what's your dream come true? It would have always been to work with all my idols, you know, not that I worked with all of them, but um, like Donna Summer. So it was Motown Mania, a guy called Jeff Thacker, a fantastic TV producer, was putting on various things. He put on Abba Mania, which, and Jeff actually played quite a big role in our career, but he put on Abba Mania and we randomly recorded, you know, I Have a Dream for Abba Mania. And it ended up being Christmas number one because we didn't even realise that we needed that song in our lives um, as, a, as a Westlife song. But it was Christmas number one. So he'd done Abba Mania, a few other manias, but Motown Mania, I believe, was the one that Donna Summer was presenting and was the kind of star presenter and performer of the show. And we um, recorded, this is before we met her, we, we re went in and recorded um, Enough is Enough it's enough is enough in brackets, no more tears. Am I, am I yeah. right in saying that? No, the other way or around. Is it the, yeah. other, way, the yeah. other way around, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I was very aware of who Donna Summer was. I didn't know her as well as the Mariahs and the Whitneys, but I was very, and, you know, if you sit back and you hear all the songs one after another, I'm like, yeah, know that one, know that one, know that one. Um, but it wasn't until we worked with her and stood on the stage rehearsing. First of all, her, her mic was on and live at all times. And she's one of these people, Barry Manlow, another one, where... The mic control 
I was like, how loud does that mic need to be turned up? Because she has it like half a meter from her face, but you can yeah. still hear everything. And it's probably like quite an old old school thing. But she's, we sung the song, we sound checked it loads of times and then actually rehearsed it loads of times. So I just got to stand next to Donna Summer for like an hour and a half. And she sung the same song over and over again. And every time it sounded like you were listening to like the original vocal, you know, mm. those magical vocals from from you know however long ago it was recorded and also the main thing was she was just the loveliest 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 woman so gorgeous and pretty and so friendly uh and her voice I was just in awe of her you know I was like I I um I, I've always had respect and I've always known who Don Summer is but now I'm a mega fan you know um mm. and it was just her sheer talent and beauty and charm that that done that you know is there's some people the the megastar side of it takes over and it's like oh my god that's Whitney Houston you know or whatever but with her it's just like pure talent pure beauty pure charm you know her her smile like everything about her I was honestly just so you know engrossed and and lucky feeling lucky to just be standing on a stage with somebody like that you know I don't think I even realized until after I was like, oh, she done that song as well and that song as well. You know, yeah. I, I probably I feel bad that I didn't. There's probably people that would give me a slap in the side of the head. <laughs> but then it would have been, you know, because you were, it, to do with your age as well. I mean, a lot of her big hits were sort of 70s and stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I've, I love I loved that performance. I wonder how, I mean, it's impossible to go through everything, but I do think there's a the key moment without going into it. I feel, I wonder what your feeling was when, after maybe a couple of albums, I mean, obviously the band has been always been successful, but a couple of albums in the middle where there was a little bit of a stumble, um, a little bit. Um, I wondered what your what you remember about the when the idea of you raise me up came into the equation, and whether or not you felt at that time that it would be the thing that changed everything back again and just really, really. Put, it put you back in the stratosphere as a band. Yeah, so, I mean, you raised me up. It gave us, like, a major second wind, you know. So, first of all, we were, you know, we were told from day one, you know, pop bands, they do three albums, greatest hits, and then somebody goes solo, and that's kind of it, you know. And to mm. be fair, that formula had played out many times before us. Mm-hmm. We never really agreed with people when they said it, but what else did we have to go by you know, so we sort of like, we're like, we don't really feel like that, but obviously that's what's going to happen because that's what everyone says is going to happen. And that's what has happened with like Take That, the Spice Girls. Um, and also, where do you go after you've played out that formula? What's next? Um, mm. And, you know, we've done like the, the Rat Pack album and um, obviously we lost a member. Uh, Brian left the band. And so he, you know, he, I suppose, stayed true to that original formula where, okay, this is my, this is the bit where I go solo now or whatever. And he'd mm. done that. And so we were left still in kind of no man's land going, okay, what happens now? Because this is the bit where not many acts really have come, gone to this point. But there was not for a second in any of our heads did we want to stop doing what we do. Um, and of course, you know, when you lose a member, what ha- basically what happens straight away, unfortunately, is like, right, either, that's go- either they're going to be Robbie Williams and the band is going to kind of dwindle or or not and you know there was kind of like eyes on us and Brian done Brian done great you know his solo stuff to when he when he when he left Westlife and went solo 
Um, and so you're sitting there kind of going, well, is this kind of it for us? Are we just going to sort of slowly fade into the background now? Um, now, the tour we done when Brian left was one of our one of our biggest and everything. It went well, but we were probably still floating on the tailcoats of stuff. Um, so you raised me up. With, I remember when it got suggested. So we knew that song because of an, an Irish singer called Brian Kennedy. I mean, genuinely hand on heart, I didn't know a Josh Groban version of it when I heard it. Um, it was a, an Irish, a lovely Irish, brilliant Irish singer called Brian Kennedy, and he had done a version of it. I think it's the original version of, of You Raise Me Up. And um, I was like, okay, I really love that song, but I didn't really, it didn't really sound like a, a pop song. It was very slow and very sort of, um, I mean, as, as we know now, our version is played at funerals all the time, but it was really slow. We're like, how is this going to get played on the radio? Um, but we obviously hadn't counted on the, the Steve Mack magic or whatever. Um, but I remember when I went in to sing it with Steve Mack in the studio, as I was singing, I was because he had he had sort of given the track a bit more rhythm when it kind of got going towards the end in the gospel choir, and I was like, at the end of it, I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! But I still had no clue. I mean, I was like, I really enjoy singing this. This is gospel, you know. <laughs> um, there's a gospel choir, and I get to do some some riffs, and I get to like belt and do all that kind of stuff. Um, but. Then I heard the record, but we all kind of got sent at the time, we got sent a CD with the demo on it and you can't, you know, can't get to a CD player quick enough to, to listen back. And I just heard it and it was all kind of mixed and the gospel choir were there and the key changes and breakdowns and it just felt like, oh, this is bloody brilliant, you know. Um, and, but still, no clue that it was going to do what it done. I remember then when we were releasing it, we went on a radio tour and we were in Scotland and we were driving through Edinburgh and I remember, I literally remember all the gorgeous squares and the lovely architecture and the stone buildings and everything in the, in the city in Edinburgh and it came on the radio station that we were about to visit and I think around the same time in the car we got a phone call to say that, I don't know if it was like a midweek chart position or whatever, but I remember in that car we sort of were informed that it's going to be number one or it's, you know, it's doing really well. And it started going up the airplay charts, which the airplay charts was something that, you know, it was like no to Westlife, you know. Um, and it just grew momentum. And then we were at the Brit Awards. I don't know why we were at the Brit Awards, whether it was something to do with you. No, I don't think. Anyways, we were at the Brit Awards and this Australian guy came up and he was talking to us and it eventually turned out that he was like the, the MD of our Australian record label. And he just said, I'm going to make that song a hit in Australia. And we kind of thought nothing else of it. And then a few weeks later, we, were like, we got a phone call from the label going, right, that guy you met at the Brits, he's obsessed with you raising me up. He, he guarantees us he's going to make it a smash in Australia and he wants you to come over. Now, Australia, we never really had a whole lot of presence in. I mean, we, we certainly have fans there and we love them but we never had that kind of take over the charts and, you know, come in and perform on the massive TV shows and kind of be very well known in a household name way. And so we flew over to Australia and still had no clue what, what was going to happen. So we'd done a showcase in Australia and I remember looking out at the audience and it was like half the cast of Home and Away was there. I mean, Sally from Home and Away was in the audience. So that completely threw me. You've won. 
You've absolutely won. I was like, Sally is in the back row. I don't know if I've ever been. I mean, Mariah Carey, fine, but don't yep. you know? Don't put Sally no. in the audience. Anyways, <laughs> um, so that was that was amazing because we kept on meeting. Like I met Irene from Home and Away on a chat show like the next day, and you know. Those kind of people I will get starstruck over, not like Stevie Wonder and Mariah Carey. Um, so anyways, we done Dancing with the Stars, I believe. It's called Dancing with the Stars in Australia, right? Not Strictly, yeah. So we done Dancing with the Stars and it literally just went number one straight away. And the next thing you know, we were just overnight massive in Australia. Um, and we got, so we got invited, just like, oh, there's this Mardi Gras thing on at the weekend, you know, we're going to invite you along and you can come to our little VIP section. This is the label inviting us to Mardi Gras but we had no clue what Mardi Gras how big it was and how much of a deal it was and so okay. we end up we end up like you know at this free champagne bar in the record label on the side of the main bandstand or whatever that, you know looking over at the Mardi Gras and well let me just say we had the, the night of our lives and all of a sudden we're just like our career is like gone huge again and it's that magic that we had at the beginning of the band and it really was the thing that solidified us and kind of imprinted it, even in our own brains that we're a four piece. This is now what Westlife is and we're as big as we ever were. And yeah, one song, You Raise Me Up, done that, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure Louis was the, the main factor that pushed You Raise Me Up maybe into Simon's brain and then Simon loved it and, and sort of, um, you know, it, it's just, I don't know, it was it was just the right song in the right band's hands at the right moment in their career. We needed it for sure. Um, but it really, it really put us right back up there. You know, um, it was breaking new territories. Not only was it like we, we ended up going to China for the first time ever, which is now a brilliant place for us um, to go mm. on tour. And yeah, it's, it's like just when you thought you were ready for home, a new song falls in your lap and it's like, right, we're going to do it all over again now for the next five years, you know? Yeah, and you did. It's funny, I, I often describe your band as, um, when people ask me about Westlife, I, I, use the, I use the phrase band of brothers, where yeah. I just, you know, you are a force to be reckoned with as a four. And... And it, and it's in, you know, in many ways, as in, you know, you can argue with each other, you can agree with each other, but you come together. The force of the four of you together is just extraordinary. And anybody dares to get in the middle of it is just, you know, it's never going to happen. It's, it's an incredible. It, it's like brothers. I feel, I feel like it's like brothers. No, I mean, and you're right to be honest with you. And you probably get that because it, it really is. I mean, um, we all have our own siblings, but. I have to say that the, the other three lads are are very much similar to or exactly like siblings, you know. Um, and that includes, you know, you don't always see completely eye to eye with your siblings. But in general, you know, but you're also talking about like, we're the only people that know each other since we were 16. Like, you know, I, I was younger. I was like 15, I think, the first, when the first kind of sniffs of Westlife started emerging. Um, and... You know, th that's the lads I was in school with. You know, Shane and Keen were I, I was in school. Like, I sat next to Keen for the last two and a half years of school, um, in high school. He was in my art class, my maths class, my Irish class. You know, like, I'm not talking about, it's not some guy I met in an audition later in life and done a few years in a band with him, you know. Um, you're talking about over, like, 30 years of 
he knows my family, you know, like the same with Shane and the same with Nikki as well. You know, Nikki came along only, only a couple of years after this. And, you know, we've been there before marriage, after marriage, kids. We've been there for the hangovers. We've been there when, you know, somebody in the industry might bully somebody and the rest of us stand up for them or somebody might say something. We've been there when, you know, kind of... Uh, TV presenters are rude to us and say our music's crap live on air. We've been through it all together. We've been there for the all the number one chart positions. We've been there when we didn't get number one. We've been there. One, one of the things that, if there's one thing that can really make a band bond is losing a member, you know? Because we were like, right, we're either going to like get closer and get stronger or this is it. It's the end. So we had to reach in deep and find that bond. And um, yeah, I think... It's like anything. If, you, if you're out there in the world standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody, you're going to become close to them through experiences and all the challenges that you go through together. Um, all the highs are great, but it's, the, it's all the tough stuff that you go through together. That's the stuff that really makes you bond. And um, yeah, so it really is like brothers. And um, we, yeah, it, it is kind of hard. And sometimes I feel sorry for people new people that come to work with us and they're kind of sitting there in a boardroom <laughs> in front of us giving ideas and you know somebody's bound to like not love an idea somewhere you know like the, the mad thing is like mm. when there's four brains like something that is amazing to one person someone else could absolutely think is like really dislike you know and it's always going to be mm. hard to get your brain around that but the beauty is when all four of us like something that's the bit that's the magic thing that's the thing that's Westlife you know um, yeah. but yeah sometimes people can come and present, say, an idea for a stage set to us or a video. And um, I'm kind of sitting there in the corner <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, I better like stand up for them or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it can be tough, but you know, at the end of the day, we became tougher because we kind of had to. Um, yeah. We realized that, especially when we broke up and came back together, like the, at a, at a, in the early days of our career, it was because of all these other people, you know, all these other people that enabled us and allowed us and made us successful. But what we realized that like in every career, I suppose there's a shift where we are now responsible for our own success and we can either ruin it all or make it better and stronger. And so with that came maturity, I suppose we grew up, we're now all 40 in early forties and um, we we are the captains of our own ship. We, we cherish and adore all the people around us that, that continue to make us look great and sound great and, and continue to help us, you know, in a, in a way that can never truly be quantified, you know. Um, but it was us that decided to get back together. You know, it was us that decided we're going to be a band again. And um, along with that, we decided that we know what's best for us and we're going to be our own bosses, you know, and, and gone, you know, it was a learning curve when everyone used to say you can be replaced in the morning and you're too fat and you're too thin and you're this and you're that. Um, okay. That did happen, but well, a little bit here and there. Um, but now we're our own bosses and nobody can talk to us like that anymore. And it's not, it's not a control freak thing. It's more just like, we're all in our early 40s now. We've got kids and families. It's, it's the right 
sort of um, evolution for us to be in charge now, you know, and and so we are. We're so involved in in everything we do, you know, particularly, you know, as you know, along with our team, we're really involved in our live shows um, and we're involved in our artwork and we're involved in everything. Uh, but the one thing that, and if there's any advice that we could ever give, I think we'd all agree to this as well, is like never stop listening to other people, you know, and never and always have a really great team around you that you know and trust. Um, sometimes a new person might come in, sometimes it'll be people you've been working with for years, but um, we we have people that we trust and love and have worked with for a long time and we always listen to them, you know. Um, and it's the, if you just completely lose sight of all of that, you know, then you're probably, it's probably not going to have the, that balance anymore. Yeah. And as you say, you're the, you've been standing on those stages, you know, you know what works, you know what doesn't work. And it's, you know, and, and I mean, I've sometimes described, especially the other thing about it is that the four of you are, uh, you know, unless you're on a tour, you're quite rarely together. So, you know, when they, when you are together, you have to basically maximise the amount of things that need to be done in that amount of time. And you're not alone in that, by the way. There's other bands that are similar to that. But um, what, what that means is there's a kind of whirlwind effect that happens. And and it is interesting having worked around your band for a while when when people... Uh, sort of see it for the first time but actually I for a lot of us I think we will enjoy being in it because you're just like it just comes in and just a million things get done in such a quick amount yeah. of time well there's never a dull moment <laughs> there's never a dull moment but you know what it is though everybody cares everybody really cares and and especially you four you all want it to be the best yeah I think um I mean it anything that we ever do any any disputes or disagreements that we ever have it's all it's never because of any other reason than than we're so passionate and we care so much about yeah. about protecting and minding and guarding what this thing that we have, you know. Um, if if somebody new comes in, it's not for the faint-hearted, like because we've done this so many times. So to us, this is an, a normal day in the life, you know. If we if we go into rehearsals for a tour and our band is there, but yet in the next room we still don't know what the set list is yet, but the band are already rehearsing the set list. It was like, how could you be? Because we don't even know what it is. But they, they rehearse it anyway. And then we might make a change and we'll go back and forth. And then in the room beside that, we're approving the merchandise. And, you know, mm. we, and, and it's always like, Laz, we've, we've had like a year to do this. Why are we, why are we making, you know, why are we cramming it all in the last minute? But it's actually quite exciting that way. Um, and it's just... It's the way that things work with us. Like we do kind of disperse after a tour or after a promotional kind of say release an album, promote it. Then we all kind of like leg it off home to our family and our friends. And, you know, we we see each other occasionally, but it's it's mostly that we go off and live our lives. And then we come back together and you've got this intense whirlwind, as you say. But the passion and the excitement, you know, we might try three different versions of looking like that. But on the third one, when we finally get it right, the excitement of that and the, because all we're trying to do is do something that blows everyone's kind of, you know, blows everyone's brain. <laughs> all we're trying to do is, you know, do something that blows the crowd away, you know? Um, and so when we find a version of looking like that, like on the current Wild Dreams tour, we kind of went, you know, quite heavy with the rock kind of guitar thing. And, um, you know, it took us quite a bit of time to, to get it there, you know, uh, but like 
nobody knows that when they're at the gig and we come out and do the song, you know. But um, there's a there is a process behind every single song. I mean, trying to find the right version of "Flying Without Wings." You know, after 20 versions of Flying Without Wings, how can we do something now to make it even better this time or make it different or reinventing songs without spoiling the essence of them? Like, I mean, you you know, yeah, yeah. it's very difficult to, to do a different version of Mandy without taking away from the beautiful original Mandy. But at the same time, and it's not even always because of the audience. It's like sometimes it needs to be different for us as well because we can't get sort of complacent or we can't get bored of it either, you know? So it's, it's, we have, you know what? I think it's like, if we, if we, if we blow our own socks off, then hopefully that means the audience's socks will be blown off. So like in rehearsals, we're trying to impress ourselves. And if we're impressed, then hopefully that will mean the audience is impressed, you know? Yeah. I have to say, um, Mandy's, Certainly on the current tour, um, Mandy was was the gift because I just remember the kind of, the, the, the instruction came down the line, basically we're at the Grammys and there's like a 150-piece symphony orchestra behind us. And I just thought, yeah. Your worst nightmare, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I can do that. And actually, even believe it or not, I take some convincing. I think the first time you said ABBA to me, I was like, yes, but... And I had reservations and, you know, and it's, and it, yeah. and only because I wasn't quite sure. It's normally whenever I have reservations about things, it's like, oh my God, can I do it? Like, can I pull it off? Basically, can I do it? But well, it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot at stake when you do stuff like that. Um, I think like, you know, the, the tour before that we done a, the Queen Mel and that's, that's, I mean, Abbas, I mean, both of them are just as dangerous and risky. Mm. Um, but there's something about our fans willingness to just go with what we do like I don't think our fans are there going oh don't tell me you've done a queen you know you know they just want to have fun and enjoy themselves and our medley where we always do like either a bunch of covers of various different artists or more recently it's been the queen medley and the ABBA medley um every year we're like right how do we beat the queen medley there's no other band you can do for stadium tour you know for big gigs and then um it was during lockdown probably to do with the fact that I was reading the press that ABBA were doing their, you know, the hologram um, show and everything. Um, because, the, the, you know, the, 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 the Queen movie or whatever was, was out and that sort of fed into the idea that, okay, Queen have had a bit of a resurgence in the proper mainstream of, of late. So that now is a good time to do a Queen medley before everyone else does it. Um, and I think... It was the same with the ABBA thing because they had done, you know, it, it, they were in the forefront of the general public's mind. Mm. And so that's why sometimes it's appropriate to do stuff that the fans are already sort of, it's in their, it's in their mind at the time. So I don't know what we're going to do next. Um, but every year it's, it's mind boggling and then we somehow get there. But what people don't actually know is the fact that you don't just throw, we don't throw these things together. I mean, both of those medleys took about three months from concept. Absolutely. But because not only because of actually getting just to get exactly the right bits, exactly the right singers, and then, you know, we have such attention to detail. If you're going to pay homage to two of these bands, every single tiny element of them have to be exactly correct for it to have authenticity and be, and be your versions of the songs. Yeah, so so for me as a singer, it's really important to try and get across the intended 
vocal style, let's say, of an ABBA song, but at the same mm. time, it's important for me to not look like I'm trying to sort of um, copy. So it's a balance between I want to sing it how I would sing it, but I also want to sing it how it was intended by the original yeah. writers as well. And also not sing it so differently that I've now taken it completely away from the song people know and the, and the vocal melody people know. Um, but in general, we're all just police, you know? Um, th- I think like, you know, you certainly are a fantastic policeman in that sense. Um, you know, because, um, and this is it, we need, we need a bunch of policemen in, in that situation because, you might spot something that I that I wouldn't, let's say, and there might be something that I, I might feel. But by the time it goes through the process of going around all the different policemen, we're pretty kind of secure that we've got rid of all the bits that might be a bit like, oh, cringy or, yeah. or bad or wrong. And all of us play a part in that. All of us, all the lads in the band and everyone around us. Um, and it's really important because if you are going to play with fire or do something risky, like mm. an ABBA medley, like Westlife doing an ABBA medley or a Queen medley, it could be so wrong, you know, we could get it so wrong. But because there's so many people, and that's what I spoke about earlier, having a team of trusted people around you, along with drawn from your own experience of a knowledge of your own audience, I think it's a very measured risk. And, you know, I was standing in in Wembley Stadium on the stage during the ABBA medley, looking around. And, you know, you do think to yourself, God, remember, like, when when people were, like, saying, it's not, it'll never work. And then you're standing in Wembley Stadium and you've got, like, however, 60, 70,000 people singing every word back to you. And it's it's not, like, it's not an I told you so moment. It's just like a, you know, we somehow we've nailed it again or somehow we've, we've, uh, we've got away with another <laughs> risky medley. But you're not only doing that, you're standing in Wembley Stadium with closer to 90,000 people as a band that's been around for 22 years that never played Wembley Stadium at your height in the first place and you're selling it out. That is, I mean, I have to say for any, anybody, any, any fan of the band, anyone that works with you, anybody that's is interested in the band, the, the pride that everybody had of seeing you four up there. I can't imagine what it was like for you to look out of it, but certainly the people watching you, it was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. I always compare the, the fact that we played and sold out Wembley Stadium to You Raise Me Up, like we spoke about earlier. It was like a, it's a moment in our career where somehow, against all the odds, we somehow got a little bit, like, I'm not saying bigger, but like we, we somehow achieved something new you know, over 20 years into our career, something that we never would have uh, predicted, something that we didn't in the reunion expect or plan to to go to the point of Wembley Stadium. It just naturally progressed that way. Um, but one thing I will say is like anybody who's taken 20 years to get to Wembley Stadium, it's not just us four on the stage. Like it felt like the fans were on the stage with us. It felt like our team was on the stage with us. Like everybody... You know, there's certain bands that play Wembley Stadium in their sleep or artists and, you know, for us, it just meant something very, very deep to us. You know, you don't just, you don't kind of fluke Wembley Stadium. You might, you might like have have a decent song and sort of somehow sell out a couple of arenas, but you don't, you don't get to do that with with Wembley Stadium. If you play Wembley Stadium, it's a, 
you can't argue with that, you know. And so it's lovely to have moments like that this far into our career where we feel like we're still evolving and still growing. And that, you know, just when you think you've done it all, it's like something brand new happens and you feel like a kid again. Like you feel like a 17 year old here in Flying at Wings for the first time again, you know, like because the, the idea is that who knows what's around the corner, you know. Um, as I say, just when you think you've achieved everything you could possibly achieve, you do something and surprise yourself again, you know. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, just to, to finish off, I mean, there's so much we, 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 we haven't spoken about, but I mean, when you talk about achievements, I think it's as someone that's known you for a long time, you know, I feel like there was a culmination that happened of, of so many things when, when you became a dad, I think oh, everything yeah. about you, I think even down, down to your stage presence and performance and everything, it just seemed to be, it was the one thing you were waiting for to make everything fit into place. And since then, it's all just, it's just easy. Yeah, I think um, what Leila done was put, put everything into perspective or back into perspective or whatever. Like I was saying to someone recently that, um, you know, Leila, Leila, what Leila's doing is she's, she's teaching me so much about myself. She's, she's, reminding me of myself when I was a child or when I was young, um, which basically, you know, if you can sit in the garden with a bucket, you know, and listen to birds singing and sort of, um, you know, if that can fill your whole mind up and you can be all amazed by it and the smell of the plastic of the bucket and the sounds of the birds, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, if that can completely satisfy a brain, then it just goes to show you don't need any of the rest of it you know you can if you can if you can just sit in a moment like a child does and just be happy with the room you're in um you know all of the extra stuff that we end up convincing ourselves in life that we need and if i don't have success and if i don't have the number one or the millions of albums or the stadiums then i must be a failure or my you know everything's going to go downhill from here but um just being around Leila and seeing her laughing at her own shadow or, you know, um, it, it, she could, you know, she could play with a crust of a bread for like two hours, you know, like it just, it, it's such a, an amazing reminder of um, how it doesn't, life doesn't have to be complicated. You can, you know, you can enjoy the simplest of things and, and they can be just as enjoyable as, you know, all of this other stuff that, we convince ourselves we need in our lives to, to make ourselves happy and successful. Um, and also just, I mean, she's actually hilarious. Uh, she's, she, I don't know how a two, three-year-old can have such a sense of humour, but she's, she's, the, she's the kind of a, has us laughing all day, every day. And also the one thing I always wondered, oh, wonder will she ever like to sing, you know, when she's 10 or 11, wonder will she starts. She's been singing since she, since she was born. <laughs> Honestly, she, she can, you know, she sings all day, every day. She remembers songs, like she remembered all the Christmas songs in November. She remembered them. She sang about 10 Christmas songs in a row mid-November when the first Christmas advert came in the TV. She just like went bang, bang, bang and started singing all the Christmas songs. And I was like, like you're three years old. How can you remember all the words and everything? Uh, but she just amazes me in every way. And the main thing is, and you hear this, people saying this all the time, you know, but... 
but children, they, they do put things into perspective. You're like, God, I used to worry so much about X, Y, and Z, but really, like, it doesn't really matter that much at all, does it? You know, what matters is being happy. You know, I want my kid to be happy. I want her to feel comfortable and safe. I want her to, you know, eat well and sleep well and laugh in the morning and laugh in the evening. And that'll be, you know, mission accomplished if she's healthy and happy. And then you can't help but remind yourself that actually that's really what, what, um, what you should be seeking out as well, you know, is just the simplicity of health and happiness and bit of laughter and bit of singing. That's all it takes. That's, that's all it takes. Do you, lastly, I mean, I wonder how you feel. Obviously, there's still a long way to go, but as someone that had to grow up in a world where it wasn't quite as easy to be who you wanted to be, do you, do you see a lot of positives in how things have changed with the possibilities? Um, I mean, I know our trans friends don't have such so much of a good time at the moment, but I, I feel like there, there has been a few things that have changed for the positive. And I think, you know, in, in some ways, people like you have been a, 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 a kind of someone to look up to for, for a lot of people coming, coming after you. And I think you laid a lot of groundwork. I wonder what your feelings are about where we are with that fight at the moment. Um, so, you know, th- th- this is a topic that, that has always like deeply affected me since I was a kid, you know, um, the horrific realization when you're nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever age that, Oh my God, like there's something that I've just realized about myself that could make everyone literally hate me. And, and every, like, you know, you know, I was 10 in 1990. So at that point, the atmosphere and the information that I had gathered from my surroundings was if I ever shared these feelings I'm having with anybody, I could literally lose everybody. I could get beaten up. I could, I could become the most infamous kind of person. You know, you, you people will think I'm weird, but you know, all, all this stuff, you know, I don't mean to go back too deep into it, but that's the level of, of worry and um, it's a mountain of fear, you know, for a 10, like a 10 year old child should not be feeling like that. It should feel, like I said a few minutes ago, they should feel safe. They should go to bed happy, should wake up happy. They should feel safe and loved. And, um, and by the way, I felt all of those things I'm talking about in my, in my own family home, but, but I also felt, you know, an overwhelming fear. I felt like I was harboring a, a dark secret and um, you know you, you can't help but feel like you're harboring an unsavory kind of dark secret about yourself and god if I get found out here I'm in big trouble you know so that's going back to the early 90s when I was in my bedroom locking the door listening to Alanis Morissette and Whitney and Mariah but um, you know uh which puts a bit of perspective on why I said it was so important for me to find a way to express what I was feeling, you know? Um, and that's when I think, you know, my sing, my style of singing being quite emotive and expressive, that's where it came from. Because at some point there in the early nineties, my, my actual real life emotions merged with singing and singing has always been connected to real emotion for me. But um, anyways, going back to what we were talking about, it's, it's something that then through my own teenage years, I continued to get progressively worse probably and into a worse place because I was, 
you know, I was going further into adolescence and everyone around me was having their first dance and their first kiss and their first girlfriend and all that. Um, so I finally got into Westlife and was nowhere near being ready to come out. But yet all of a sudden I'm now in the biggest, you know, new pop band in the UK and we're on the cover of Smash Hits magazine. And every second question is what type of girl do you fancy? And who's your favorite girl and girl, 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 girl. And I was like, girl. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it was very scary because I was like, now the secret I have is 10 times worse and 10 times bigger and 10 times darker. And I started feeling like, you know, somehow this could be perceived that I've pulled the wool all over everyone's eyes and I'm a big fake. And, you know, so it just got, the secret got bigger. And I remember um, ever since I was a kid, my dad was like, you know, you'll always get caught out with secrets and lies, you know, so tell the truth and you'll always be okay. Um, you know, and eventually that, you know, couldn't have been more true, but my journey in getting there was was difficult. And so the point I'm making is, um, when I think back, you know, I, I, I truly, now, now that I came out and I eventually came out in 2005 or 2006, it's that long ago, I can't remember, thankfully, but um, having other people as an example would have been very helpful to me. Um, Stephen Gately came out before I did. Um, that was helpful for sure. Um, you know, but... I think one thing that people in the public eye have the power of doing is normalizing things because, well, if, if Graham Norton says it and if, you know, one of, if one of the people in that big pop band say it and this famous actor says it, all of a sudden it becomes acceptable and more normal. That's a big power that, that celebrities and people in the public eye have. And so I've always kind of felt a sense of duty that if there's anything I can say in any interview that can just help somebody effectively I'm probably helping some former version of myself you know in my head um and so that's why I care so much about anyone in that position and anybody that sometimes you might get a letter or somebody might come up to you in a pub and kind of whisper and go look I'm, I'm gay as well but I haven't told anyone have you any advice and you know it's it's heart-wrenching but also an opportunity to say something helpful and sometimes you can't think of anything constructive to say but you try your best anyways and that's all I've ever done I've always tried my best to add something to the pot if I'm going to say something try and say something a bit meaningful or even share some of my stories now 15 20 years after coming out you just share some stories going yeah I was really scared really worried someone can go oh my god that's exactly what I'm going through you know and sometimes to just even share your own story is is enough um and I mean where everything's at now I mean, there's an undeniable massive leap forward if you go back 20 years to to where the conversation and the journey is at now. But it's also, you know, I just, I just think that um, what people need to understand, let's say people outside of the, people outside of the LGBT, QI plus community need to understand is that it's sometimes you can get a sense of oh god have we not like sorted all this out now like you know or okay right I'm okay with that but now you can't you're taking the piss now you can't it's like it, do you not understand that you've like you've lifted up a rock and you've gone okay 
we've, we've, we've realised something now, there's been a mistake here, let's rectify it. And then the, the deeper you get under the rock, there's, there's loads of stuff going on and there's loads more and, and there'll be more to come. So it's a conversation and an evolution. It's not like a problem, right, problem solved, bye-bye, can we go back to normal now, please? Um, we're realising stuff about ourselves as human beings and we're learning more and more and I don't know, each year and each two years and five years and each decade, you know, there's there's a load more people who don't have to go through stuff behind closed doors that can be themselves in public, but there's always going to be another set of people one layer deeper than that again, and it's going to keep coming, you know, and it's not just, say, gender-based or sexuality-based. It's neurodiverse, it, neurodiversity, it's... It's, it's all sorts of things and we just have to be open to the fact that it's going to be a constant evolution, you know, it's the evolution of mankind or the evolution of, of all of us as humans. So this idea that, right, we've sorted that out now, can we just, can we, can we just, why is everyone still going on about it? That's not how it works. It's an evolution and it's going to keep evolving. And next year and the year after, when I'm 60 and 70, we'll still be understanding one little bit more about ourselves as humans and so I don't think people look at it like that you know um I think people as I said they see it as like right okay these people have been wronged let's fix it and move on you know I'd rather just keep an open mind you know and and as I say help in whatever way I can um and just try to be one of a group of people aka society and just try and be a good person in that society and you know um yeah just just try and add to the pot and if everyone done that a little bit we'd be moving in the right direction you know um even in ireland i've been involved in this surrogacy legislation campaign and no one person can say they've driven the campaign it's it's been such a team effort now there is a couple of people the key people that really trailblaze and really do the groundwork but in general without the whole team um you know it wouldn't happen and i always find like in ireland when there was a a same-sex marriage referendum it's actually the people outside of the minority without them it can't succeed like you know so it was all of the the straight people let's say that that made the same-sex marriage referendum happen and so in the same way, it's going to take everybody else to join in and be part of the team um, for things to get where they need to get, you know. Um, so I don't know if you can edit that down to a couple no, of No, I don't, I don't want to edit it down because I think what you said was beautiful and perfectly put. And I think it, it really helps explain it. And ultimately, it's just all about love anyway. And absolutely yeah and just accepting ourselves as humans and yeah and, and as you say it, it's just bigger and brighter and different and you know it's you know i feel it's there and um and i think you know it it's 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 really good to chat i mean obviously we spent a lot of time together but there's some of those stories i i, I hadn't heard before and there's a funny little thing that everybody notices when mark is in um sound check specifically um, you, you go to a kind of little space in your head where everyone else is kind of looking around doing stuff. And when you sound check, you're kind of, you often just wander around the stage. And I always, I kind of think I now know that this place you go into your head is back to your bedroom 
when you're listening to Mariah because you're kind of walking around with like not really looking or thinking about anything else that's going on and then just these kind of mad riffs will come out and I've <laughs> now figured out that's where you go. Yeah, it, I suppose it is. It's like you put I put the mic up but very often nothing is coming out but then I'm just waiting for something and I'm just waiting for my brain to be spontaneous and and do something and it's strange because you, you could be standing in an empty arena which is obviously massive and cavernous and huge but with the inners in your head the one thing that the inners do because I used to hate them at the beginning I couldn't get used to them but one thing they do is they actually make everything smaller again a bit like a bedroom you know they take like a huge space and they bring it right down to this small space and that can be helpful as a singer because just I don't know acoustically like it, you can you could get lost in, you can hear the front of house speakers, you can hear the crowd screaming and sometimes it's easier to focus on on what you're singing if you bring it right down to a small space, which the inners can can do sometimes. So, Yeah, you're there. Shout she's back in her bedroom. She's back in her bedroom, but this time she's Mariah. That's what we think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm all, I'll, I'll never get there, but I'll always try. No, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Listen, have fun in Asia. Um, lots of love to the rest of the boys and um, smash it out there. I know they'll absolutely love the show. It's weird. It's a, a killer show. It's so good. Yeah, no, and I, I honestly it's... can't wait. I, obviously, I've missed a few gigs, uh, to say the least, but um, I just I can't wait to get back on stage with the lads and... Just, you know, it is a magic. It's still a magic. There's no night or gig where we go through the motions. Every single gig is, we get there with the skin of our teeth, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's a... Full on singing, full on, I mean, arse shaking, let's be honest. Yeah, there'll definitely be some of that. Um, we always have to stick a little bit of arse shaking in there. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, it's going to be great. And there's so many more gigs this year in 2023 that we'll be doing. And um, as I say... You, you do you're 17 again when you're up on the stage like it's it's almost like every night is new and to say that you can do that you see so many people and it does feel a bit like they're going through the motions but i can tell you that every time we go out on stage we're all screaming at each other psyching each other up i mean backstage beforehand and you know we're proper high-fiving each other and there's the pep talks and it's like you know it's all it's never lost its excitement and as long as we can keep that Hopefully we'll we'll be keep we'll be going strong for years to come, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely will. Amazing. All right. Thanks for chatting, Mark, and uh, I'll see you soon. Cheers, Steve. Thank you. Take care.